Happy Tuesday, Jess. Happy Tuesday, Hamilton. I say happy Tuesday because it turns out saying happy, insert day of the week here, is some people's office icks. Right. So saying happy Monday, happy Friday, happy Wednesday is something that people don't like in the workplace. They hate it, in fact. So we put the call out on the Stuff Instagram page to see if any of you had office icks that you wanted to say goodbye to in 2023, never to be seen from 2024 onwards. And we got a few messages, didn't we? What, what, what do people say? So we've got a couple of these ones in. I agree with almost all of them. First one, team meetings right at the end of the day, especially on a Thursday, Friday. I just... That's nasty. Five-day work weeks. Look, fair enough. Good luck to you getting rid of those, though. And I don't know if you could quite call that an office ick. I feel like that's an office norm. Um. <laughs> Requirements to go into the office when everything can be done at home. Hey, fair enough. Who wants to Who wants to commute if you don't have to? Mm-hmm. Oh, I like this one. People saying, you're on mute. You're on mute. We actually that say is, that to our producer We do say that all the time, and it is quite funny. <laughs> Although then it's sometimes, for whatever reason... Said person who was on mute seems like must be talking so loudly because you always have to say it so many times. And you have to point. You're, and you're say, on. Look, you're, you're, no, you're on. You're on. You're on. You're on. Mute. Uh, my favourite though was from Smurfy Lifting. I feel like that's anonymous enough to name them because it's a great Instagram handle. Uh, hot desking is an abomination, writes Smurfy Lifting. We are adults. Give us our own workspace. You unsupportive turnips. Wow. I'm inclined to agree with you, Smurfy Lifting, and. Thank you, because I will now be using the insult, unsupportive turnip, from here onwards. On that note, to you all you unsupportive turnips and your supportive ones, Kelda, this is Newsable, I'm Jess. And I'm Imogen, and this is what's worth talking about. We're talking pseudoephedrine. It's on the way back, but what about the reasons it was banned in the first place? We talked to the reporters behind a stuff investigation into a controversial police interviewing technique. The gay pay gap. Why are gay men paid less than straight ones? And the curious case of the first tomato to be grown in space. Yeah, that rhymed. I did that on purpose. That was very delightful. And we've got all that and more coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz slash support. The coalition agreement between National Act and New Zealand First from a couple of weeks ago could really have been renamed the mother of all repeals, but the somewhat surprising offering from that agreement was the reintroduction of the drug pseudoephedrine. Pseudoephedrine was used in cold and flu medication, but has been off our shelves since 2011 in an effort to tackle pea production. But Act's leader David Seymour says the ban doesn't make any sense anymore with pea still being made and no viable medication for those who are ill. Joining us now is Billy McFarlane, who ran a large Bay of Plenty meth operation before turning his life around and founding a drug rehabilitation program in Rotorua. Kia ora, Billy. Thanks so much for coming on. Kia ora Can you tell me a little bit about your contact with pseudoephedrine before you turned your life around? Was it something that you were aware of? Did you know how to get it and that kind of thing? Right, I started in that, in that space in about 1998. And the early onset of the methamphetamine production in New Zealand, when only a few individuals were involved in that, and they had people had brought people over from overseas to help in the production of, of methamphetamine. And so in those early years, I was one of those guys that went into the chemist and bought things like Telfast and that off the shelf. So that, but I couldn't, I couldn't manufacture it. I was buying it. I was what we would call a shop. I was buying it and I was handing it on to people who would manufacture the drug for me. Did having pseudoephedrine in pharmacies put pharmacists in danger? No, not at that stage it didn't because I think it actually put a few of them in pocket 
you know, because a lot of the stuff that <laughs> was sitting on the shelves just all of a sudden just started getting bought hard out by everybody. What happened to the drug market or the meth market, Billy, when pseudoephedrine was taken away from pharmacies? It obviously didn't stop. Well, it just went offshore. Yeah. You know, Kiwis, we're innovative as a, you know, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter what you do to try and take, to take the supply away. We, we, we need to have a look at the demand. We just look straight overseas. Mm. And what happens, what do you find when you look overseas? You find out that the product's actually cheaper. Should have been sure. looking overseas in the first place, you know? So they sort of pushed us into our innovative space where we decided to go to places like China and places like um, Bali and all these sort of, sort of places that where we, where we could, a, a lot of the, the Asian countries where we could source the, the drugs for a lot cheaper. What do you think then that reintroducing pseudoephedrine to our shelves will do? Is it going to change the drug market in any way or is it? it, it... I, don't, I don't believe so. What it's going to do is it's going to give us back the thing that we need to decongest our children and our old people. If it's not going to make criminals jump up and down with joy or anything like that. They're, I even believe that they're still not going to stop wanting to import. Because they, now they're not importing pseudoephedrine and ephedrine. They're actually importing finished product now, which is still cheaper than trying to source pseudoephedrine from New Zealand. So that whole conversation around the criminals, let's, let's just put our, our old people and our children first and let's deal with the criminals in another way. It's Billy McFarlane, who now runs a rehabilitation program in Rotorua. Thank you so much for your time, Billy. Thank you. After all that, let us know what you think about pseudoephedrine. Are you stoked? Are you concerned? Flick us an email. We're newsable at stuff.co.nz. And also, it doesn't have to be about pseudoephedrine. You can just stop in to say hi as well. A controversial police interviewing technique used to crack cold cases is again under the microscope after a just-completed court case in Christchurch. A staff investigation earlier raised questions about the interviewing technique introduced by retired Detective Superintendent Tom Fitzgerald. Two of the reporters who have covered this extensively are with us now, staffs Blair Ensor and Mike White. Kia ora kōrua. Hi, how are you, Imogen? Blair, can you remind us how this cold case technique worked? So CIPM, so C-I-P-E-M, or the All Complex Investigation Phase Engagement Model, sorry, we've said that a few times over the last couple of years, <laughs> uh, was developed by a detective called Tom Fitzgerald, long-time detective. Really the whole premise of the interviewing technique was around trying to get suspects or witnesses who were reluctant to engage with police to engage, and it was around trying to crack cold cases. They kind of set aside the more formal interviewing setting and uh, they they had a, a suspect sitting on a couch uh, at 45 degrees and sometimes they would insert things like a McChicken into the conversation. It was very much uh, more relaxed and informal in the hope that by relaxing the individual that they're speaking to that they might give them the information that uh, they've long held. And so then why has it proved so controversial, Mike? Well, initially it wasn't controversial. Initially it seemed as if police had found this amazing new tool to crack cold cases, this SIPM secret source. (laughs) And we obtained emails from police where they were all celebrating it initially and lauding Tom Fitzgerald and his technique. But then questions started to be raised and it all blew up over the case of a man called X who'd been interviewed using SIPM in 2019 regarding a murder of a woman in Upper Hutt, Lois Tolly. And it resulted in the man X giving a false confession to the crime. And his lawyers questioned the interviews and a High Court judge 
Simon France really strongly criticised the actions of the interviewers and said SIPM had been used to unacceptable excess, the suspect had been manipulated into making a confession, and that the interviews weren't uh, pursuing a neutral truth but a sustained pursuit of a particular truth. So he ruled those interviews couldn't be used in court. Charges were withdrawn by police and that contributed to the investigation into Lois Tully's murder collapsing. Where did this come from? Did retired Detective Superintendent Tom Fitzgerald create this entire thing or had we seen it done in a similar ilk elsewhere? It emerged from Tom Fitzgerald, as Blair said. He was one of the country's leading detectives. In about 2018, he was asked by the police commissioner, Mike Bush, to put together kind of all his experience and knowledge into a formalised framework um, about interviewing on these tough cases, cold cases in particular, And so it was really just a formalisation of what Fitzgerald has been doing for many years in interviews. And I mean, this is a guy who's involved in some of the most high-profile cases in New Zealand. Scott Watson murder inquiry into the disappearance of Ben Smart and Olivia Hope, the Kirsty Bentley case. It's important to note that in its paper form, it looks benign, no problems. The criticisms have been how it's been implemented. So do we know how many cases have collapsed due to this way of doing things? Is it just that Lois Tolly one? Lois Tolly is definitely the only prosecution that has has fallen over where where Sippum's been involved, and then uh, more recently the Angela Blackmore homicide here in Christchurch, Sippum was brought up fairly extensively by the defence and Tom's involvement there as well. It should be said in the the Blackmore case that the confession that was ultimately extracted from the man who turned out to be the, the star crown witness, Jeremy Powell, didn't take a huge amount of coaxing. But the defence did uh, look quite closely at uh, how certain bits of information were inserted into the the narrative during the interview and and whether some of it was disingenuous. But ultimately, the the confession was ruled admissible and um, was instrumental in the case Blackmore's other killers being held to account. So where is the SIPM technique at now? Is it still being used today? What's its future? There have been two IPCA complaints about SIPM. The Law Commission is looking into its use. So really, we don't know where SIPM's going, but I think it's fair to say even even the police have rebranded it uh, Peace Plus. That's their new name for it. But whether it survives is uh, certainly it won't survive in, in the form that it was previously used whether it's adapted, whether the elements of it are retained, we still don't know because that police review of interviewing is still ongoing. Mike White and Blair Ensel, thank you so much for taking the time to explain all of that very fascinating stuff indeed. Thanks, Imogen. Thanks very much. Much and cheers. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You'll also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. 
coming up. The astronaut accused of something awful. And oh, if this happened to me, I'd feel awful. He has finally had his name cleared. We're going to tell you all about it in just a tick. But while you're here, remember, you can chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. It really does help us out. New Zealand's made substantial progress on promoting rainbow community rights over the past 20 years. Those major steps include legalising same-sex civil unions in 2004, then legalising same-sex marriage in 2013, and banning conversion practices in 2022. But what about pay? Most studies from overseas show gay men generally earning less than heterosexual men and lesbian women are paid more than heterosexual women. Alexander Plummer, research at the Auckland University of Technology, has been trying to find out what the patterns are here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Alexander, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Does it seem as if those overseas patterns I mentioned earlier are reflected here? Yes, it does. It's very similar to what we observe overseas. So we see an earnings premium among women. We can't really say whether they are lesbian. We know they live in a, uh, are in a same-sex couple and we see they have higher earnings. And for men in same-sex couple, we see a earnings penalty. And the magnitude, the size of this earnings difference is for women around 6 to 7% more and for men actually the same ballpark, about 6 or 7% less than men in uh, different sex couples. You've written about the difficulty of getting this information. Why is it important that we have it? It is uh, very important because it's a very vulnerable community. So there's a lot of research going on about mental health of Rainbow Plus uh, youth, and there we see a lot of differences in mental health disparities. So, for example, when it comes to um, suicidal thoughts, depressive symptoms, and very actually hard topics where we see higher numbers of among uh, young rainbow community members. And therefore, it's a very important policy topic to understand this group and try to improve their situation and to bring them at the same level. What do you make of that role reversal with gay men earning generally less than heterosexual men, but then lesbian women getting paid more than heterosexual women? It's, it's, it's sort of not what one might expect, perhaps. There, there are a lot of uh, factors which might explain why we see these patterns. So what we see among um, women in same-sex couples is they are uh, more often working full-time than uh, women in different sex couples, which means sure. there's this one aspect which is called household specialization. So in uh, for women, then there's one of the partners taking over the labor market aspect and tries to get as much money, of course, to uh, support the household. The other one then focus more on the household, like childcare aspects and uh, stuff like that. For men, it's kind of like surprising. So um, we don't have necessarily this type of household specialization going on. And of course, one thing to ask is how much might be actually discrimination play a role Mm. Uh, when it comes to um, differences in earnings. And so do we know what it's driving these differences? Is it discrimination? That's a, that's a, the, the $1 million question, actually. So discrimination mm. doesn't play a role. We don't have the final evidence that clearly says, oh, it must be discrimination, discrimination mm. contributes. But what we see is we see differences on men living in Auckland and Wellington compared to west of New Zealand. And there, it's kind of interesting because... Most men in uh, same-sex couples, they live in Auckland, Wellington, the same also for women. And what we see in Auckland, Wellington, 
the earnings penalty. So the difference between men compared to men in different uh, sex couples is smaller compared to the West of New Zealand, which gives us an indication that there might be actually discrimination playing a role. But we also see aspect of household specialization might be a factor which explains why we see the differences. Alexander Plum from AUT. Fascinating to chat. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it much. Thank you. Emma, you will be pleased to hear this one. The astronaut accused of stealing and eating a tomato has had his name cleared. I think you're going to have to give us a bit more context because, yes, I am pleased to hear that without knowing any more about this story, this astronaut has had his name cleared, but I would still like to know more about this story. Earlier this year, a NASA astronaut named Frank Rubio, he harvested one of the first tomatoes ever, ever, ever to be grown in space on board the International Space Station. It was a big moment, big moment for tomatoes, and then he lost it. He lost it. Oh, and I imagine that's the exact opposite of what you want to do after harvesting one of the first ever tomatoes to be grown in space. Yeah, space tomatoes, you don't want to Mm, lose them. Now, he says he put it in a little bag, but when he went to get it out of the bag, it's gone. Space-growing tomato, nowhere to be seen, and all of a sudden, all the other astronauts on the space station, they start accusing him. Turn on him. They say, Frank, you've eaten that tomato, haven't you? Which, of course, he swore, black and blue, he didn't do. But then he left the International Space Station in September, returned to Earth in a cloud of shame. (laughs) A cloud of gossip. (laughs) Tomato-eating accusatory colleagues on board. And then, (laughs) guess what's happened? Those, Those colleagues, the one that was accused towards him, they found that tomato, and now they have to eat their words, but not the tomato, because again, total it's exoneration, exactly. as a former US president would like to say. Frank Rubio's name has rightly been cleared. This is great news. Thank you for giving us the context. <laughs> they, the, the mystery kind of remains because they won't say where they found the tomato oh. or the state the tomato was in, because you know oh. it's been a couple of months <laughs> <laughs> where this thing was. But Frank Rubio has been reached for comment, and he told CNN he reckons it was probably all shriveled up by now. Because because it has been a couple of months. I love that that's the comment he chooses to make, not like, woohoo! Yeah, I told you some! <laughs> it's, never it's, on, it's on the state of the Tom. Uh, imagine being the astronaut that found it. Like, imagine opening the door to the the room on the in, in the International Space Station that no one really uses, and then just seeing, I don't know, like a cherry-sized tomato floating around. <laughs> really <laughs> and then shriveled up. Having to phone home <laughs> to say, yo, Frank... <laughs> Sorry, mate. That is the stuff that Netflix series are made of. Thank you for bringing us this story, Jess. That is Newsable for today. I'm Imogen Wells. I'm Jessica McCarthy. Watch your tomatoes, everybody. I think Frank Rubio is slightly still to blame now that I think about it. We Frank out of this. He's exonerated. He lost the tomato. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support.